I checked off a bucket list item last night. I saw Kansas in concert. It's the first time. It's like they've been around for 50, 50 years. 50 years. And uh, when I was in college back in the 80s, I read Carrie Livgren's book, Seeds of Change, and um, I've always been a fan. But it, it's kind of it's interesting because when he wrote like Dust in the Wind, he wasn't a believer. And then he became a believer in Jesus Christ, and it because it caused conflict in the band. And Steve Walsh was like, "I'm not singing these songs that Carrie Livgren was writing, you know, about God." And he left the band. And uh, but just to see the contrast of the old and the new, the old and the new through 50 years, and them playing the songs last night was uh, pretty phenomenal. And it, and it's it's not much different than the church today. I mean, there's some really good old stuff, some really good old stuff. And let me clarify from last week, from last week, when I talk about uh, the new covenant came along and made the old covenant obsolete, it didn't make the Old Testament obsolete. The Old Testament is the Old Testament. It's history. It's Bible history. And I still read it and I still study it. I enjoy the Old Testament, although for the last five, six years, we've just spent time in the Gospels and the New Testament. I'm not void of the Old Testament, but I'm also not a part of the Old Covenant. And that's the distinguished part that we need to establish. And that's really, as we go through Hebrews, that's all this writer is trying to establish. You guys, the Old Covenant covenant is over. It's done. It's obsolete. He said it, not me. So if the Old Covenant is gone, if it's no longer there, then obviously there's a New Covenant that was made. And that is what we live in, is a New Covenant church. And he's trying to get these Jewish believers who experience the Old, just like I listen to the Old songs and listen to the New songs, they've listened to the New Covenant and they believe the New Covenant, but the Jews are trying to get them to go back to the Old Covenant. And he's trying to do everything he can to convince them, no, don't go back, don't go back. This is like, this is it, this is it. So he gets into the explanation of of the tabernacle, not the temple, but the tabernacle. In verse 1 it says, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. This is the tabernacle that they built with like a tent. I'll show you here in a second. They built like a tent, and there is where the offerings were taken. We explained this last week. There's a difference between offerings and sacrifices. Offerings is a gift that you give out of the graciousness of your heart to God, but the sacrifice was for the atonement of sins. This all took place in the tabernacle. And they would literally pick up and move this tabernacle from place to place as God moved them. It says in verse 2, For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Now again, this wasn't Solomon's temple. This wasn't Herod's temple. And the descriptions that you can find about this tabernacle 
is actually in Exodus chapter 35 through 40, and it explains it in detail. You can go and read it. But let me show you uh, an example of what the, the, the size of the, the tabernacle is. Uh, this was uh, Herod's temple. This was Ezekiel's temple. And this was Solomon's temple. And this was the court of the tabernacle. Now, an American football field is this size right here. And what we're talking about right here is this tabernacle. That's the size. It's like less than half of a football field in length. It's relatively small. Now, uh, let's go to the, the next slide, and I'll show you how the, what the tabernacle actually looked like. This is what they actually drug around and, and built as they moved from place to place. But you can see that there was an entrance and a curtain, and as they walked in, there was this brass altar, a brazen altar. There was also a brazen labor where they would wash their hands, the priests would wash their hands, but they would actually make the sacrifices there at the altar. There were sacrifices of animals, bulls and goats that were made. Bulls were usually made for the high priest and the other people sacrificed goats. And they would sacrifice, the blood would be poured out, and they'd take the blood, they would actually wash their hands, the, the priest would, before he would go in. And uh, inside of the holy room, the holy room, there was the table of the showbread. There was actually 12 loaves of bread that went on there that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And then uh, you get up here, and there's the altar of incense. There's the menorah that was here and the altar of incense. We just lost it. Flip it on there. This TV's been going out uh, off and on, but I have my assistant here to like turn it back on. Ethan is my remote control. Come on, buddy. You can do it. Come on. You know the evil one's the prince of the airwaves, by the way. If I need to tell you that. Is it coming? There we go. All right, so we're back in the holy room right here. And then you see this veil. This this veil, number three, uh, was this huge curtain that separated the holy of holies. The holy of holies was this back room, and the only person that could go into the holy of holies was the high priest. And he would take the blood and the ashes, and he would make a sacrifice. And if you look uh, on verse 3, it says, Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. The tabernacle was called the most holy place. Now, go back to the picture, Bogdan. Uh, this is the most holy place, and there was a, a curtain there. The dimensions, the court was 45 feet long, and it was 15 feet wide, just 15 feet here, 45 feet there. So what is that? That's uh, 15 yards. Is that right? My No. Is that right? I, I just went blank on my mathematics here. Forget, forget this screen. You can turn it back on. Uh, verse 4, it says, uh, well, let me go back to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was 15 feet long, and it was only 15 feet wide, and it was 15 feet high. Verse 4, it says, It contained the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. 
covered with gold on all sides. It was actually, the ark was made of acacia wood, and you can go back and look in Exodus chapter 35 through 40 and see that, but it was actually covered in gold on all sides, in which there was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, it says, it says it contained the gold altar, but if you looked at that picture, the picture, the altar of incense is actually in front of the curtain, the veil. But it's talking about the Holy of Holies. But what happened is the ministry, the ministry of this altar of incense actually made its way back into the Holy of Holies. So when he's saying, when he's saying the altar of incense, it was literally talking about the incense, the fragrance from the incense was in the Holy of Holies. So it's not an error there. But then you have to go, okay, well, what about the three items that are in the Ark of the Covenant? The three items that are in the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, there is a, a gold jar containing manna. What did the manna represent? It represent when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were complaining about food. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, Lord, take care of us. And so he provided them with manna. It was a time of rebellion for the Israelites. And then you look at, okay, so what's the importance of Aaron's staff that budded? They were complaining about, we need a high priest. Who's going to be the high priest? And if you go to like Numbers chapter 16, it talks about Aaron's wooden staff actually developed these buds, these, these buds, and it said, he is the high priest. It designated him. So when they were declaring that they needed a high priest, it was another act of rebellion. And then the tablets of the covenant. What happened? Moses went up on Mount Sinai, was at the burning bush, and God gave him these two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. He took them, came down, and saw that the people were sinning. And he got mad, and he threw them down, and they broke. It was another point of rebellion. All three things that are in the Ark of the Covenant were representing points of rebellion by the Jews, the Israelites. It's kind of crazy to think about it. But, but watch this, verse 5, it says, The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. The mercy seat actually covered the acts of rebellion. If God's presence was anywhere in this tabernacle, which it describes it is, he's literally sitting between the cherubim on this mercy seat. God, who is the giver of forgiveness, sitting on a seat of mercy that is covering these acts of rebellion by the Jews the mercy seat was soon to be a place where sin would, would be forgiven. Verse 6, with these things set up this way, the priest entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters the second room. That would be the Holy of Holies. And he does this only once a year and never without blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So general priests 
they would go in and out of this holy place performing the duties on the outside of the tabernacle, outside of the holy place. There were many priests that did that because there was a lot of work. There was a lot of sins to be, for, to be atoned for. But the high priest, he was the only one that could actually enter the Holy of Holies at least twice on the Day of Atonement. There was a specific day, this Day of Atonement, and he would go in there twice. Once he would go in there to take the blood of the bulls, and he would actually offer a sacrifice for his own sins, which indicated that the high priest sinned, right? If he had to make a sacrifice for his own sins, then he had to cover them. He had to do the same thing that he was wanting to do for the rest of the Jews. And obvious, and the obvious sins that people talked about, it talked about uh, which he offers for himself and the sins that people had committed in ignorance. So the second time he goes in, he's actually taking the blood of goats and the ashes, and he's offering up for the people that have come and brought these sacrifices to God. But it says committed in ignorance. Well, what does that mean? Well, there were obvious sins that they did that they could acknowledge that they did, and they would make sacrifices not on the Day of Atonement, but throughout the year. They were constantly making sacrifices. But there were these sins that they either forgot about or they didn't even know that they did. And so when he says the sins of ignorance, that was the day that it was covered, was on the Day of Atonement. Their hidden sins or ones they had forgotten. Verse 8, it says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Let, let, let me back up a second. I want to go back up to verse 5 because I totally missed saying it's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail. He was talking about the mercy seat and the holy of holies. Well, remember, we're not in the Old Testament when we're reading this. We're in the book of Hebrews and the New Covenant, and things have changed. Jesus has already died. He died probably 30 years before this. And now they are get, they're getting ready. They're getting ready for this destruction to happen. And what happens in 70 AD is the temple is absolutely destroyed. So the writer of Hebrews can't like speak about these things because they're no longer going to be in existence. Like the Ark of the Covenant and everything, it's not in Washington, D.C., hidden for Indiana Jones to find. It's not. It's not in existence. The temple... Is not in existence anymore. And so therefore, he can't speak about these things. Okay, now let me go back to verse 8. It says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been, <clears throat> had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was st still standing. The closest place a common Jew could get to near God was the outer court. That was it. Like the, the Jews could come up and they could bring their animals for sacrifices. Only the high priest, only the high priest had access to God, and that was only one day a year. Think about that for a second. They were limited 
to the access of God because their sins had only been covered and not forgiven. It's a huge understanding right here. I've said this in the last few weeks. The Day of Atonement, it talks about atonement. There's a difference between atonement and forgiveness. Atonement is just the covering of sin. It's not removed. It's still there. Like all the sins that were done in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, were still there. Even though sacrifices were made and blood was poured out. Verse 9, it says, This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. He literally saying, it's a symbol. This is, this is a picture. It's a picture of the real thing. It's just a, it's a copy. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Verse 10, it says, They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. So this covering that he's talking about It only dealt with the outward behavior. It was all about behavior. In fact, that's what the whole Old Covenant is about. Give them Ten Commandments. See how they do with that. Give them 613 laws. See how they do with that. They couldn't do it. You can't even do it. The whole point was, the Old Covenant was based upon what you could do, what the believer in a Messiah to come it could do what you could do for them, but they couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. Jesus was the only one that could do it. And here's the, here's the issue. No matter how many times they sacrificed animals, no, many, no matter what animals they brought, no matter what they did, they still had a sinful nature. Like, Literally, they would, you, you, know, you know what would happen. Here, here, here's a great thing, is the high priest would go in and he would make an offering in the Holy of Holies and then he would come out and he would literally, there'd be like, you know, there were two goats there. One they sacrificed and took the blood back, but the other one they came back and they took the blood and they poured it on the goat and they sent him out in the wilderness. That was to represent the running of our sins off into the wilderness. They call that the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from, scapegoat. comes from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But who, who, who knows what goats do? You know, you send him off in the wilderness, he could show back up at your front door. Which basically leaves them with a problem that the sin was never really ever dealt with. In fact, it probably comes back and haunts them. And it's literally what he's saying here is this, this just deals with the behavior. But if there's a restoration that's to take place to make right, to correct, all the sins of the Old Testament had to be dealt with at one time. Now watch, we're getting into the good stuff. Verse 11, but the Messiah has appeared, the high priest of the good things that have come, and the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not this earthly tabernacle that you guys built. 
you built it, you know, great, perfect, you know, gave you, God gave them directions and they built it, but it was built with human hands. That is not of this creation, he says. Jesus actually entered the tabernacle pitched by the Lord in heaven. You go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we said this last week. It says, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Here's the beauty of it. Because Jesus, the Messiah, goes to heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God and I'm seated with him. I have 24-7 access to God. Whereas the only way the Jews had access to God was through this high priest one day out of the year. That was it. They never got to experience what you and I get to experience. Amen. You, you, you hear what I'm saying, right? Like, there's a holy living God that is present in this very room right now. He's, he's not sitting on the mercy seat of a tabernacle that doesn't exist. He's, he's literally right now in our presence. And just as Matt was saying, where is the I am? The I am is right here. Not me, but in me. There's a holy living God inside of me and inside of you. And that's pretty exciting. Verse 12, it says, He entered the most holy place once. He, he entered the most holy place once for all. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The high priest entered the holy of holies with the blood of bulls and calves for his own sin. He then re-entered the blood of goats for the people. Jesus died one time and entered this heavenly tabernacle with his own perfect blood. That was it. Jesus' one-time entry was for all eternity. Everything that happened in the past, everything that is currently happening, and everything that's going to happen in the future, he did it one time. One, he's, not, he's not getting back up on the cross again. Like, Everything that you've done, everything you're doing, and everything that you're going to do, Jesus has already dealt with it. It says, verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, again, that was atonement only for their behavior, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's blood, Jesus' blood, was for the forgiveness and the renewing of the soul and the spirit and the body. Like, his blood was capable of doing it. Here's what's different than those that were in the old covenant. My old sinful nature is gone. 
you go, Rusty, you still sin. Yeah, I, I do. But it's not my nature to sin. It is definitely not my nature. When it says, I was crucified with Christ, something in me died. Something in me died. You tell me what it is that died. I, was cru- I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Something in me died. The old man has passed away. What's the old man? What, what has passed away in me? That's not just a figure of speech that's written in the Scripture. Something happened in me. Something died, and it was my sinful nature. I don't have two natures. I have one nature, and that's that I'm a new creation. I'm a child of God. Amen. I'm holy, righteous, and redeemed. And when I act out of that, I'm acting out of my nature of who I am. When I sin, I, I'm just not acting out of my nature. I literally make a choice and I act out of my flesh and I act out of my own strength. In fact, if I'm preaching or teaching here this morning out of my own strength, I'm sinning. It's that simple. I can't, I can't do things in my own strength. I can, but if I do, it's sin. I either choose, I have, I have two choices. I say this all the time. I have two choices. I either walk by my flesh or I walk by the Spirit. I pray to God I'm walking by the Spirit here this morning. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That happened. It happened when I was eight. I didn't realize it. It took me years and years to figure that out. I was always taught growing up, well, you have two natures, and they battle each other. No, I don't have two natures. He crucified my old sinful nature. I became a saint, and sometimes I still sin. I'm not a lowly sinner saved by grace. I was a lowly sinner saved by grace, but I'm not anymore. I'm a saint. Jesus did this through his spirit, the same spirit that lives in you and me. You have been empowered you've been empowered to overcome sin you're sitting there in the midst of your grief in the midst of your chaos in the midst of your situation and you don't even realize what you got yeah you're still going to suffer you're still going to grieve you're still going to hurt but you realize that You've been empowered by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. (laughs) The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in your mortal body. Verse 15. Therefore, He's the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties to ratify this covenant or peace. It's Jesus. He's the new mediator. Not Moses. Jesus, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The Old Testament believers, they're literally saved at this point. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, you see, those who believed in the Old Testament believed that there was a Messiah that was to come. They didn't, in fact, know that it was Jesus. There's 
obviously all sorts of prophecy that have occurred in the Old Testament. But they were looking for this Messiah that was to come and to save them from their sin. And at this point, they're saved through their repentance and their faith. Abraham said, it says Abraham believed, he didn't say this, it says Abraham believed and because of his belief he was credited righteousness. Like he was going to be made righteous someday, but it had to take place when the Messiah would come and be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. That Messiah is Jesus. And now because you live after Jesus and after the cross, you have been made righteous. You are the righteousness of God. You are greater than Abraham. You are greater than John the Baptist, it says. Verse 16. Where a will exists, and we're not talking about God's will here, we're talking about like a literal will that you write. I hope that you all have wills. I encourage you to have a will about your stuff, and your family. It says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. Like, for a will to like go into effect, you have to die. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in force while the one who made it is living. Who, who, whoever makes a will, you can change it, as long as they're alive. As long as you're alive, you can change that will. But the will goes into effect when the person dies. It's binding. It's irrevocable. It is what it is. Well, once again, because of what is committed here, Jesus, you're secure. Like it, it's a promise. Jesus died. What was established has happened. Verse 18, it says, That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. God established the covenant with blood. You go, you can, you can dwell deep on this and go, well, why the blood? Why blood? Why, why did God say that blood was the sacrifice? If you go back to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. The life is in the blood. Blood is the symbol of death. Verse 19, For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll, scroll itself, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Blood was and is the symbol of death. If it was just the blood, then the animals wouldn't even have to die. But the blood was taken and death occurred. The life is in the blood. Death had to occur. The old covenant was sealed with the blood of the animals. 
the new covenant is sealed with the blood of Jesus. A huge difference. Moses' actions literally pointed to what Christ was to come and do in the future. And once the old covenant was sealed with the blood, it couldn't be altered. But the new covenant, it comes along and made the old covenant obsolete. Jesus literally made the old covenant dead. It took the death of a perfect man to remove the sin of man. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Why did the heavenly tabernacle need to be purified? Well, we do know that Satan brought sin into heaven and he fell. He approached God in Job chapter 1. In Revelation, 10, in Revelation 12, 10, it says he's still up there accusing the brethren. Like he's literally accusing to God about the things that you've done. And Jesus is like, mm, no, I'm taking care of that. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. Verse 24, it says, For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, Jesus, Jesus walked on the earth. He was there. The temple, you know, Herod built this. Herod built this temple, a really nice temple, and they were actually building it while Jesus was doing his ministry on earth. But Jesus never entered the holy of holies. He literally brought the holiness to the temple. Jesus was the holiness. He came to the temple. He never entered the Holy of Holies because he wasn't a high priest here on earth. Now he represents all of us, all of God's children in heaven. Verse 25. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Jesus' blood sacrifice made it final. He says, it's finished. One time only. He sat down. It's done. It's over. Not going to happen again. All your stuff has been dealt with. <laughs> Let me say it again. All your stuff has been dealt with. All your stuff has been dealt with. I, yeah, I don't, I don't so much need a response as just enough for the Holy Spirit to cause you to believe that. That, that you literally live in a state of forgiveness. That you're going to mess up. That you're going to make bad choices. Your family's going to make bad choices. But he's already dealt with it. He's already, it's, it's done. He loves us that much. Verse 26, it says, Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, just for me. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Forgiveness occurred one time. All, uh, it was atonement. Remember, it was a covering. It was atonement. 
But the forgiveness occurred one time for all the, those in the Old Testament, all those in the Old Covenant. He's not climbing back up on the cross again and dying again and having his blood poured out. Sin is an issue that has already been dealt with and it's been defeated. He died once and he's never to die again. Verse 27, it says, And just as is it appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. <sighs> Here he goes. Okay, now we're going to have this judgment after we die. That's First of all, he's made a general statement. He's, he's made a general statement because he says that people die once. Well, we know Lazarus died twice. We know the old, that there's people in the Old Testament and New Testament that got raised from the dead, and they died twice. And then what about Enoch and Elijah? They never died once. They just got like taken up. So he's literally making a general statement here that judgment follows death. There's two different judgments. There's a great white throne judgment, which you don't have to worry about. That's whether or not you believed or you didn't believe. Well, you believed. But there's a judgment seat of Christ, and that happens in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And literally, he like, he's like looking at all the things that I've done in my life, and everything that I... <clears throat> Everything that I've done in my own strength just gets burned up. Everything that he did through me is rewarded. It's going to be a beautiful day. <laughs> like, don't be afraid of judgment. Because, one, if he's already dealt with your sin, it's over with. And you're not going to see a movie of all your stuff that you did up there. Some of you, that would be epic. <laughs> There's no movie. There's no list. There's no list. There's no. There, there's nothing, other than other than what he what he did through you. And that's a beautiful thing. Romans eight one. Let me remind you. This is not my words. This is his. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So when you hear judgment, it'll be a good judgment. Yep. Last verse. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When Jesus returns, he's not going to be dealing with sin issue because... He already did. That has been confirmed over and over and over. And when we see Jesus face to face, he's not going to mention one single sin to you because he's forgotten it. We live in a constant state of forgiveness, not just here on earth, but for eternity. The high priest, he always came out to the people with confirmation that their sacrifices had been received. When Jesus returns, it will be confirmation that the Father is pleased with the Son's offering for us. He's pleased with Jesus. He's pleased with you. He's made you perfect. You still sin, I get it. You still sin, you still make bad choices, I do too. But he's made me perfect. He died one time and took care of it. God, I don't know how you can make this any clearer this morning with your word. 
that we live in this new covenant, that we have to trust. We have to trust what your word says, not what I'm saying, but what your word says. So, Lord, today, I pray that you cause you cause our friends to understand it and to believe it with all their heart, that they can walk in a state of forgiveness, that the shame and guilt, the condemnation be over, be done. Those are tactics of the evil one. May we truly walk, walk in righteousness. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.